This is the right direction where we talk to professional storytellers and writers and we discuss their craft and how they sell it. I'm your host, AG McDonald, and let's get started with the show. We are here today again with our irregular co-host or what was it? The the random guy who wanders in all the time. Like, I, mean, I was just going to say I'm the guy who has like that uh, that that can rattling change asking for a little more. I'm that on the podcast. Give me your attention, kids. <laughs> that works too. Uh, your attention. I'm just thinking of the Simpsons where it's like, just don't pay attention to them. Yeah, just don't look. Um RK Gold, for those people who don't know who that is. Um, is here so, for the attention, kids. Okay, I'm done. That that made me sound like Petridge Farms always remembers. <laughs> oh, no. I was thinking of, um, of the old guy from Family Guy. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't want to go the, yeah, the full on the pedophile. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. So, on a serious note, moving on from Family Guy. Um, you have a book that is actually being released today as we're recording this. So by the time this is released, people who are listening will be able to go and purchase that book. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about Father in the Forest? Yeah, I mean, it's a little less entertaining than Family Guy. So I can understand if people listening to this podcast are like, no, go back to Family Keep Guy. Go back family to guy. Keep going. Let's talk about uh, Brian's interpretation of The Bachelorette. Uh, that's, I think, the last episode I saw. I really haven't kept up with family. I've always been more of a South Park guy. But as far as my book is concerned, it's not <laughs> animated at all, sadly. Um, no, it's a middle grade fantasy. It follows a young girl, Yael. Uh, she travels across her war-torn country to find her birth family and finds a new family along the way. I've always been drawn to those found family concepts uh, or those found family pieces, the stories of, of sort of children under similar circumstances coming together, uh, go, facing facing down trials so that they couldn't handle. I, I love power of friendship tropes. I, I love just when they come together and they could they find something that they were always looking for and didn't know about in each other. Yep. No, and, and even though you say your book isn't animated, which it's not because it's a book, but even though you say it's not animated, it is a perfect book for Ghibli fans. Yeah. Uh, so this was inspired after we watched uh, Lapita Castle in the Sky together. Um, it really didn't take any elements from it except for there are airships. So I, I guess, I guess, with, I guess with the theme of protect the environment and having airships, it, it, it really fits the Ghibli aesthetic. But uh, other than that, it was just the overall theme of um, I love the story of, of this girl coming from falling from the sky and coming from this superior uh, human. I don't want to say human race because I don't want that. You know, that, that sounds like it's a little loaded, but she comes from this, uh, this elite human society that literally lived in the sky and is found by this uh, sort of more common boy who's, uh, I, th- I think, gets in trouble. He's a little bit of a pickpocket. He, and he ha- he's from a father that, or not even a father, a birth father, but he comes from this household where everyone's working with their hands and they just sort of bring their worlds together. And despite feeling alone in the world, they find a family in each other. And that sort of relationship really was the catalyst for wanting to create okay a uh, girl from above instead of going in a city in the sky i did girl from the stars and boy from the ground in this case it's um it's a young boy who was in his country who, who was a victim or lived in the 
northern city uh, that was a victim to the worst massacre in their war for independence uh, prior to the book taking place, meeting, to, meeting together and trying to find what they've been missing since the war ended eight years prior. Yeah. And, and I think you've, you've touched on using inspiration in the best way possible because what we often see as inspiration is, hey, this thing was popular. Let's, let's rip it off and let's, let's just you know, call it something else and, and we'll make it blatantly obvious that we're trying to cash in on that. But you haven't Disney done live that. live action. <laughs> what was that? Disney live action. Hey, kids, you like the Lion King animated? You'll yeah. love the Lion King animated differently. <laughs> or, or the magisterium series but we won't touch that one um no no let's do it for the hate comments let's do it for the hate okay listen we, we know we don't have to worry about this on uh, this on this podcast but chances are if you're listening to this podcast you haven't heard the magisterium series well it turns out this fucking no-name series sorry for swearing but i don't think this is monetized anyway so who fucking cares this no-name series has this zealous fan base that defends some of the shittiest writing on the planet i don't mean this pretentiously because I myself am a proud shitty writer, but I would, I do not understand how anyone would defend the series as anything more than, oh man, I needed some mindless entertainment. And even that I can think of better examples like Family Guy and South Park. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I just, I don't know. when When it comes to that series, I'm just like, really, that's the hill you're going to die on. But, um, Back to it took me like about- five days to read all five of those books. And I just complained to you on Voxer with every single one te- reading off the beats. I mean, the good news is we're both fluent in that series now. So if that's right, wants- like, yeah, I know, I know back to front. And even if I don't, I can go back and check your notes. <laughs> we have, we have Voxer notes. You do not want to t- debate us on the Magisterium series. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, on your book, um, which you'll now get hate comments for because you've gone out after the Magisterium. Um, Yours deals with inspiration in the best possible way. You've you've broken it down and not said, okay, why did I love it? And given some vague veneer of what the story is about, you've broken it down to exactly what it was that you loved about it. And then you've created your own story based off that. And I think that's what inspiration should be. But so often it ends up being this other, like, let's make a, a pale photocopy of it. Well, when we want to talk about people ripping off other stories, um, I think there is one solution to it and maybe this is wrong, but it's, it's almost like when you love a story, it's not about identifying the individual beats that set the story forward and then mimicking them in purple instead of gold. It's about identifying the themes because themes can be renewed in an infinite amount of ways. You can have the same theme. I got God under, under more filters than we could possibly imagine off the top of our i almost said our stoned head but that's only 50 percent of the podcasters right now um (laughs) so i think that themes are a fantastic place to find your inspiration in the content or the entertainment that you are consuming because those that's probably what is drawing you to the story in the first place it's something inherently it's the subtext that just has really resonated with you and you're carrying it with you throughout your day-to-day and you're applying that story to your personal life you're not forcing your personal life in the rigid plot structure of that story no exactly and that's what i've said that for the longest time i'm like yeah but as a writer you need to look at these stories that you love and say what is it that I love about this? It's not just, oh, I love the characters or I love this moment. It's like, yeah, but you love that moment as a result of like 5 million other decisions that got you to that point where you cared. So you can't just say, oh, I want this moment to happen in my story because if you do that, it's it's not going to work. 
exactly it's it's not it's it really is about like what we were talking about before we started recording this podcast it's taking that extra beat for yourself and reflecting on what you ultimately want the outcome of this to be it's not about jumping in with your eyes closed uh before you even get to the pool i know that's just an awkward metaphor and it took a total nosedive there but it's about no taking a moment yeah exactly it's about taking that deliberate moment to truly identify what set the story apart and then that's where you can draw the inspiration from because you want to recapture those feelings not those actions that's right and i guess that's that's the difference and i i don't say this with myself in mind but in in generalities i say that's the difference between a good writer and a fantastic writer. A good writer will think, okay, I've got to structure this story and I've got to hit these certain beats and whatever else, but a, a fantastic and awesome writer will turn around and say, okay, but what is the goal for this? Like what, like this story, like why am I telling it? Am I telling it because I want to get famous or am I telling it because I have some universal truth about humanity that I want to explore? And I just have to say both are valid in their own way. It's just, if you want to get famous, there are faster ways to do it than writing a book. And much faster. <laughs> there are much faster ways to do it. And if you're willing to compromise certain, I don't know, reputations, you can get famous really fast. Oh, yeah. I mean, I suppose you can as an author too. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, what, what's her face? Addison Kane lawsuit right now. I mean, she has to be the most famous author that no one's read. how's that for a badge of honor (laughs) it's a fantastic badge of honor and she so i I just i I love that i only know of her existence through shout out Lindsay ellis i'm currently reading axioms end right now um so talking to speaking of like finding influence and things axioms End very clearly has found influence in transformers now if it didn't um and i'm just totally projecting that i am sorry but i pretty sure i heard her say in a video that that obviously she finds inspiration in transformers and 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 the parallels are pretty obvious but that being said this story is so uniquely her own um part of that is with voice and that's not something that we've touched on yet in our conversation part of that is with voice um but you can tell that it wasn't just about getting famous or trying to cash in or hitting a beat for beat uh replica of a previously existing story it was about trying to recapture now, I don't want to put words in her mouth, so I'm just going to assume maybe that nostalgic feeling that she gets when she when she was first introduced to Transformers or at the very least trying to replicate the enjoyment that she had from these stories and find the ethos of it. Yeah, that's right. It's I guess it's just about thinking deeper. And that's the thing that like even if you want to become famous or you want to, uh, you know, entertain people, you don't want to give universal truths or something like that. If you If you just want to entertain people, you've still got to look at it from that perspective of, okay, if I want to, you know, make this generation's Transformers or Ninja Turtles or something like that, then what was it about that that I loved? That's the question you've got to be asking. Absolutely. Um, I'll also say another reason why I, I am more than okay and happy to read a transformers inspired work and i don't want to like dilute it by just only calling it that but just for the sake of what's going to follow i want i want to call it that it's an original thing to find inspiration uh from and apply to your own work i feel like with every science fiction author you know they want to go after the big uh novelists they want to go go after the the uh as the the asimovs the um the 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 herberts the um I, I almost said Orson Scott cards, but 
he, he's persona non grata, grata in a lot of circles, but they I mean, want, they he, want to he's go still an inspiration for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and then of course they also want to, or, or, you know, star Wars and George Lucas or even star Trek. Uh, though, I feel like that's sort of where people will draw a lot of their inspiration from and want to, and want to replicate in science fiction. So it's sort of refreshing to find someone who's like, no, you know what? Y'all can have these desert planets and, uh, galaxy far far away i'm going to go with first contact transformers <laughs> sounds good um but that's that's something too i guess that um i've i've mentioned this in the past with the whole uh fairy tale retellings is something that we've seen so often in in fantasy story particular particularly sorry fantasy storytelling particularly ya fantasy storytelling yeah um, fairy tales aged up they they did fairy tales became porn uh in some circles but yeah they they aged all the way fairy tales went from g to x yeah they they did in some circles um but one of the things i find interesting and i think i've mentioned this in a video that i made one time and it was about the fact that all of these fairy tale retellings there's like about five the five stories that they draw from they like there's the the world has like a seemingly infinite number of of fairy tales and folklore that you can draw on, but it's funny that it's always Sleeping Beauty, um, Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid. Funnily enough, it's like the five biggest Disney princess movies that get remade all the time. Um, but it's like, well, just pick something else. Like even if you pick a Disney one, like pick something that Disney's done, but just do it. That I don't know. Do, do Wise crack. Re- yeah. Uh, I was gonna say, Wise Wisecrack literally just released a video on uh, on how Disney sort of owns the world now and and its its rise to power of of, of basically remaking all of those historic uh, you know classic fairy tales, um, but taking all of the lessons out of them and just applying filter after filter of cute and the long term sort of societal breakdowns that led to because too many people grew up with a certain ideology of what life is supposed to be like versus the realities that the original fairy tales were supposed to be conveying. Um, so it's sort of interesting to see how Disney sort of revolutionized this taking of a story idea and, and trying to break it down or yeah, try, trying to like con- compact it into the common, uh, the, the minimal viable product that they can then send off to the masses essentially create pop culture and that's what's inspiring the second generation of storytellers who are just trying to do the same thing again compact and already compacted story instead of going back to the original source and finding the lessons there well that's yeah and I said, this is obviously speaking in generalities again but looking at those ya books like yeah that's the second wave of that these are people who think the original stories are by disney and they're writing these these stories that are compressed again and yeah, it's just double great. compression. It's yeah. d- double <laughs> compression. It's, it's, I mean, and, and, and you know, and that, anyone that sounds like a book title book. in and of itself, by the way. So, like, double compression. I feel like that's a dystopian right there. When I bite into a piece of bread, I don't want it to be a fucking compressed brick. I want that fluffy, you know, I want holla. Okay. <laughs> Go back to the source and get the holla. Don't, don't give me this, this fucking brick that I'm going to chip a tooth on I, that you're calling guess, fairy tale retelling. Yeah. But even aside from that, I guess my main point is that like, okay, instead of going after, I mean, at least for now, Beauty and the Beast and the Little Mermaid and that, those wells are tapped out. Like, let's go after 
you know, even Mulan hasn't been hasn't been done to death as much as The Little Mermaid, like stories like that, or going back and and looking at you know the romance of the Three Kingdoms and dealing with the the multitude of stories in there. Like, there are so many stories from around the world that you can draw inspiration from that don't have to have been major movies. And as you said before, uh, when you actually read craft books like your favorite john truby's 22 steps so good uh writer's block really is no longer a thing no that's right and 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 you can come up with your own original concepts um because that you don't touches be... on the same themes that's right you and even even in doing so if you were trying to create say like a flipped version of the the little mermaid you know you would go in knowing that you wanted to come with the opposite outcome, which to be honest, if you wanted to get to the opposite outcome, you'd just go with the original one because she died. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was about to say, she, wasn't the original one like she was hoping to, to rejoin him in heaven or something? Like that's what she, that, that was considered her victory? So I have read it. It's been a very long time. I'm pretty sure she, it's, it's very similar in terms of the fact that she wanted him to fall in love. And he um, fell in love with someone else. But he fell in love with someone else and she died and turned into sea foam at the end. And I think it was meant to be like an allegory because there was like talk that he was like homosexual and like it was like a yearning for something that you can't have. Um, I I don't want to say that as fact though because I could have just <laughs> I mean, made I know that why. up. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, if that was the case, they could have just made him gay. Like they could have, it could have just been like, I, I gave up my voice. For, I mean, she could say it, but she could have somehow conveyed she gave up her voice for him. And then he's just like, I love you. And then kisses a dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You've got your retelling right there. If, any, if anyone here wants to retell The Little Mermaid, make the prince gay. The Jilted Mermaid. But don't make it a male male romance. You can't make Ariel you can't make Ariel a gay man. Ariel still has to stay a woman longing after this gay man. But hey, do you know what? All jokes aside, if you wrote that, that would be a fresh take. It would absolutely be a fresh take, because she wouldn't get the guy. And I feel like for that to be a really interesting fresh take, like that'd have to be like the inciting incident. And it's all about her like dealing with the fact that she's like a rejected Disney princess. <laughs> <laughs> oh god and then and then of course the prince would get the uh, the red white and royal blue treatment yeah well no uh, yeah maybe not <laughs> Everyone, the world doesn't this. the world doesn't need another one of those this give me this gives me the skits on ag's youtube channel check it out the red white and royal blue review it was terrible. beautiful it's beautiful your review is beautiful well i appreciate that it it, it almost made reading that painful book worthwhile so, um, going on with what we were talking about before, um, going back to something, and this is, this is just a side note, but it's something that I wanted to say, um, and why not do it on a podcast instead of talking privately about it? But you, you and I, as you have mentioned before, we have been doing um, a Ghibli movie watch-a-thon um, together, and, and we haven't actually caught up with it in a long time. Um, so we've only seen about three or four, like I've seen them all, but you've only seen about three or four, but yeah, I saw the ones we watched together and then I watched uh, spirited away on my own. Yep. Um, but the thing that I find really interesting about this is when we were watching Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, uh, which was the first movie that we watched, you were like, Oh, there's so much in this. That's like 
um, beds are for flowers. You're like, oh, there's there's so much of this. And, and it was something that you had written, obviously, before we watched the movie. Um, and going back and reading this book, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I can see hints of Howl's Moving Castle. I can see hints of um, Princess Mononoke. I can see, particularly with the forest and stuff like that, I can see hints of all of these Ghibli stories, but I find it fascinating that you haven't actually seen them. But, and that's why I'm like, I'm really keen for you to actually watch them because I'm like, you, you need to see these because, like, these are like as though they're pulled out of your brain. Were you talking father in the forest or beds are for flowers? Cause recurring theme in anyone listening, all of my books have a fucking forest. Um, so, uh, w- which one were you talking about? Well, so father in the forest when I was reading. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So father, so I have not seen Howl's moving castle. It's been at the top of my list. And, and you told me when I first gave, told you the concept of, um, of father in the forest, it reminded you of princess Mononoke. So I've, I've been meaning to see that, but, um, I don't even remember saying that, but I still stand I remember, by that statement. <laughs> well, because it's it's not even a main part of the story. It just sort of comes up a couple of times in, in dialogue how the uh, the forest is obviously uh, toxic in Father in the Forest. And there are different explanations. because So Father in the Forest takes place on in a recently declared independent country in on the central continent there's three continents in this world uh the central continent has one two three six countries on it um the, this uh, father and forest mostly takes place in collodion which is the southernmost country uh, on the continent um and along its northwestern border is a forest that's toxic to anyone that enters and depending on where you are in the country or on the continent even the reason why that forest is now toxic differs. Uh, ob- obviously, um, Amelia, the central continent, which is also sort of the the home of King Benny the Dick, the villain, uh, he they insist it, it's um it's the uh, the one true God because they have a different religion as well, um, punishing a false idol. Then you have um, those in Collodion who fo- believe who subscribe to that because they follow the one true God. You have others who just believe their God of threes abandoned them uh, because this uh, is the historic site where the, the mother star descends once every thousand years touches down and resets the world. Um, and then there are the realists who are like, no, the forest is toxic because it's right next to the, uh, the factories um, and primary driver of industry of Amelia, and it polluted the world uh, when King Benedict the first, the so three generations prior to the book taking place, uh, built up his army to uh, handle Drakkar, the northernmost country, because that was a war that pre that predated it all. They were uh, the the primary conflict was between Drakkar and Amelia, and so there's there's multiple reasons why all have their own reasons all have their own lore and it's part of the reason why i do really like this world and why i had so much fun creating it because i didn't leave things open with the intention of expanding them all into their own series it just really made it feel like the world itself was alive and whenever i want to dive back into this world i can and there's plenty to explore and grow organically with and i think that that's a perfect um that's a perfect thing to look at a series or, or, or a single book that you've created and say, I have enough in here, whether I choose to or not, like you've rounded it out and, and all that, that's fine. But um, you, to say I have enough here that I could make a ton of different series if I choose to, that to me is a marker of a world that's alive. And again, 
I think it's already been brought up by you, but I can't go without mentioning Star Wars. But you look at Star Wars like it was a self-contained story in the beginning, but it has so much potential that it's become massive. Yeah, and then it's Star, Star Wars is disappointing. And I know I'm a typical Star Wars fan for saying this, uh, but it's disappointing because I've never seen a more expansive galaxy that is so underdeveloped. I just, I just feel like it's such an underdeveloped galaxy. It's, it's, it's almost like there's so much to do, but we keep going to all of these new planets instead of revisiting old ones. And then the new planets are offering the same circumstances as the old ones. And it's like, okay, so, so all, it, it's the, it's what is it? The, the planet, the, the planet, planet of single hats trope or whatever it is. Um, sure. I don't think I've heard the, of that before. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll look it up real quick. Uh, planet of hats trope. It's uh, it's like where a planet, yeah, planet of hats. It's where uh, it's primarily in sci-fi. It's a Star Trek is a prime example of it, where you go to a planet and a planet has one defining characteristic on the entire yeah. planet. Yeah, no, that is that is definitely a, a trope in sci-fi. Yeah, and it's it's like it's and it I guess I guess do planet. you know what though? I think it I think that it sort of extends from a fantasy trope, and particularly with Star Wars being like a space opera, which is like space fantasy um i think it it extends from that because quite often with fantasy stories it will be like just just as an example um and and i correct me if i'm wrong because i've only seen part of it but if you look at um the likes of you know avatar the last airbender you've got you know all the waterbending people were you know peaceful and calm and the the firebending people are angry and they're you know like they they have one character defining trait and i think and obviously there, there is a little bit of... See, I, I disagree with Avatar because I think Avatar actually created real nuances with the characters. Um, just for one, the Water Tribe, the Southern Water Tribe and the Northern Water Tribe have two completely different um, cultures. Um, the Fire Nation, I, I guess you can sort of say that they had, that they, had, um, that they were angry and quick-tempered because uh, that, that was canon in the new Kyoshi, um, in, the, in the new Kyoshi books. But the Earth Nation, you saw a lot of diversity, um, especially in the Earth Nation, the Fire Nation colonies on the Earth Kingdom. Uh, when you get to Legend of Korra, the reason why Republic City exists is because after the war, they wanted to kick all Fire Nation out. But a lot of people, because the war took place for 100 years, even though they were Fire Nation, they, were, they weren't just born and raised there. Their parents were born and raised there. Their grandparents were born and raised there. They had lives and like multi-generational shops set up there and they couldn't just like leave. So they, uh, they work together and you get Republic City, which is this perfect combination of industry of, and it's the first time that this world has seen Fire Nation and Earth Kingdom people optimizing their bending efforts to create a city in their image. And that's sort of why the, uh, the, the, the industrial revolution was able to hit that universe so quickly. Well, I mean, you would know more. I've only seen season one, so I'm going by that, but it's no, but I see your point. Like it's horrible. It it, it, it has expanded from that, that fantasy trope of you've got one nation who believes this and one nation who believes this and one nation who believes that, but in reality, like literally wears black and nothing else. And they're like the death cult. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, it's, it, it's something that needs to probably be broken down. <laughs> and that's something that it's interesting. Um, when I was going through my edits for um, Winter Slaves, I was going through um, the the plot line and we were talking about the 
empire that runs the the majority of the the landmass um and you know one of the questions while editing it was okay but what about this and the empire and it was it was always trying to say okay but if you're really trying to set up an evil empire you've got to you've got to do this this and this and i was like i'm actually trying to create an indifferent empire like they're not good they do stuff that's terrible they endorse slavery and they all this other stuff but they're not inherently evil and the people are just complacent with doing shitty things and i like i find that dynamic more interesting than people than a whole nation of people who are just spiteful hateful bitter people oh i love the the conversation we had pretty recently on this topic of (laughs) for anyone now who are still listening to this podcast thank you and welcome um you if you can't tell ag and i tend to talk fairly regularly and one of our more recent conversations was where were the pro empire people in star wars like you obviously had the people who served the empire and then you had the people who were too afraid to speak up and then you had the rebels where were where, where was the propaganda wing that like was encouraging people to support the empire or the first order because they make their lives better yeah or like even even like to a more subtle like lesser extent the people who just want to cling to the empire out of fear. They're worried about what's going to be, what's going to happen when it's destabilized. And they're like, okay, but we, you know, we can't trust them to, to build up a stable government and, you know, all those sorts of things. So like, it'd, it'd be interesting to have that someone who is not even having an allegiance to, to the empire out of hatred, but just out of fear. Because I think to be honest with a lot of change, that's often people's default is, is that they're scared of what's going to happen. You know what else is missing out too? The fact that the First Order became such a empire replacement so quickly, um, signaling that this galaxy is ridiculously unstable. There would probably be a large group of people who were pro-First Order because they'd be like, damn, way too many revolutions way too quickly. We clearly can't maintain this galaxy under... um, uh, under a republic or, or under anything except for an authoritarian government. And I want that security. Yeah. And I guess, I guess that, yeah, in a, in a universe where war constantly has to keep going, cause it's in the title, um, you would think that people would get sick of it and they'd say, okay, well, we went through all this with the empire and clearly, you know, you've not done anything. There's still conflict. There's still battles going on. I still live on a fucking desert planet and have to pay taxes to all these gangsters. Like (laughs) my life has not gotten better since you killed Darth Vader and, uh, and Palpatine. Yeah. Like, and, and do you know what? This is a terrible, like star Wars fan idea, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway because Star Wars fans suggest ideas all the time that wouldn't work or be great. But um, I actually think that to have tied something to the huts at the end of um, The Rise of Skywalker would have been better than Palpatine, because number one, it would have made more sense um, that they would have been there. But um, But I don't know. I just feel like that would have been a cooler ending, like, I don't know, if they were somehow affiliated with it or they had, you know, the big MacGuffin that was going to save the world. And, like, that could have been a way to have a callback without it seeming desperate. Yeah, like, the you mean to tell me there were child slaves on Cantabite and the huts weren't around? Yeah. Uh, that, isn't that their jam? Like, I thought they loved child slaves. <laughs> they, they love them. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like they're, they're the fucking huts, you know. They're vicious and cruel. Why? Why weren't there any huts on Cantabite? They w- w- they were so fucking wealthy in every other movie, and now they're 
they're they're what? I don't know. I guess they just don't leave their. Are they their not war profiteers? Place. I don't, I don't know. And anyway, I always love the Star Wars tangents. Um, <laughs> and we have many of them. Because we have many of them, but it, it, I guess bringing it all back to Father in the Forest, I did not want this to be a, a situation of a of a fantasy where each country has one identifying characteristic. So I was. I, obviously, I'm a New Orleans author, so I put some New Orleans in Esselport, which is where uh, the southern part of Collodian, the southern country. Um, and see, I definitely got that. I got that. And I don't know. I think maybe that's where the Howl's Moving Castle comes in. I know that that's European inspired, not necessarily New Orleans, but it's... Well, New Orleans is European inspired. <laughs> but that's what I mean. Like, it's it's it has, in my mind, a similar aesthetic to Howl's Moving Castle or part of Howl's Moving Castle, which when we see it, you'll understand. So what, what, like when I was describing the streetcar and how the music filled the streets. And then of course there was the port over, um, that there was the port uh, to the overhead that had some memories. Um, and the, mar- yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with Esselport. I got to go back there. And, and when I add more books to this series, because as I said before, I'm so happy I was able to create one, but Esselport, um, who was uh, it was Brandon Sanderson's lectures. He said the best thing you could do for your setting is to make it a character, which is 100% true. Obviously a setting can't have motivation, but it can have just about everything else a character has. Well, it's even like, and then, I mean, everyone's cooled on it now, but at the time it was all that in a packet of chips. You look at um, Avatar, like everyone was like, oh, I totally want to go to Pandora. And I was like, why? Everything can kill you. there. <laughs> but it did become Pandora was like a character in that story. Exactly. And with Dune, Arrakis is a character. I mean, the ecosystem is a huge character. The cult, I mean, uh, you haven't read it, but I I know, I know you don't really care about spoilers. This isn't really a spoiler. Um, There's this one scene where um, Paul, the protagonist is crying over someone he killed and the whole, and everyone in the desert is like gasping because they're on a desert planet where moisture and water are the most sacred resources that you can have. And they're like, he spills or he, he, yeah, he shares water with the dead or he, he spills water for the dead. Um, something we would obviously see as normal grieving, but it really just creates this living environment where they Mm. take something um, as, I don't know, human is crying at a funeral and making it an event. Well, I think you've touched on something there that comes back to what we were talking about before about about that diving deeper into what it is that that you want out of the story. And you know, you could say, "Oh, I'm going to have this this desert planet, and then I'm going to have a forest planet, and there's going to be this planet, and there's going to be that planet, and they can have all of these different aesthetic things, and that's fine." But that one moment where you've mentioned a, a cultural difference to our own has more impact than having 27 different planets with weird architecture and, and all of that sort of superficial stuff. Yeah, and I guess that's really what it all boils down to. I mean, in Dune, they do have planets of single identifying characteristics. Uh, the House Atreides comes from a water planet and then they go to a desert planet. Um, but they have character there. Um, they have sayings there. There's another scene where Paul, uh, where, where Paul brings up a saying uh, that is famous in his homeland um, on, on his home planet um, that for one shows a huge cultural division there because the people who live on Arrakis 
uh, he, he talks about drowning and they're like, what's drowning? And you're just like, Oh shit. Why would a planet that doesn't have any water know what drowning is? Um, yeah. It's the little and, things. Yeah. And, and then he, he shares a story that's unique to his planet. And when it's translated, it's becomes a huge insult and it's, it's showing these cultural divides. So if you want to have a planet or something that's, that's uniform, it works if you make it deliberate, if you're like, okay, so everything is uniform. So what impact does that have on the society? Yeah. What happens when someone like one person breaks the mold? Exactly. Like it upsets the uh, entire balance of everything. I robot. <laughs> yes, that is true. Yeah. Boom. Just another, I'm, I'm just throwing out the references now. <laughs> but um going full circle back to what you were saying before and also kind of tying to what you were talking about here before talking about themes. It's interesting. Um, I have been doing some, I've been writing some video essays lately, which I had told you about. And, um, and I was doing one on the beast in the cave. And I mean, I'll give spoilers here. Cause it's like, it'll take you 15 minutes to read it anyway. Um, but the beast in the cave is a Lovecraft story about a man who goes in, he gets lost in this cave. He gets lost from his tour guide and he, he gets stuck in this dark cave. And anyway, he can't see, but something's stalking him. And then anyway, he, he starts to get panicky and gets worried. And then he picks up this chunk of limestone and he's able to hear the beast and he, he takes a swing at it and knocks it to the ground. Anyway, the, the guide comes and brings him, it brings him to to this this beast and they actually look at it in the light and he realizes that he says it's it is or at one point was a man and that's like the end of the story um and i was sort of talking about the the theme of it uh being i guess that you know it's holding a mirror up and saying you know who's the real monster and then i started to go through all of the the different stories that have done that before like um, Joker was a big one that had that sort of theme about, you know, who's the real monster here. And to use a really shitty example, the 1990s Godzilla movie that was terrible, um, that had a similar thing too. But those two stories, even though they have similar themes, are vastly different. Yeah, I mean, uh, as far as like who the real monster is too, I'll throw out two more for you. Uh, obviously, King Kong of It Was Beauty That Killed the Beast. Um, and it turned out that even though he was brought over to be this 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 spectacle monster, it was the mistreatment of humans that was that was the monstrous that that that, that was monstrous. And uh, Gollum in Lord of the Rings, uh, that that sort of fighting in a dark cave screamed Bilbo running into Gollum in The Hobbit. Yeah, and and I guess well, I mean he was he was a Hobbit, but like you know basically the same thing that he was air quotes human and turned into to something like he devolved into something. Hobbits are human. And I mean, they're, they're more human than us. Shit. All the, all, so many people today. I, I know everyone saw Lord of the Rings as a kid um, and had a crush on Legolas and, and, and wanted to, to ride off and, and be an elf. But as they grew older, they realized hobbits had the life, you know, they, they sit out on their porch all day and they, they smoke and they really don't do shit. Like, in in fact, you're rewarded, the less you do, the more you're rewarded. Yeah. Like if you want to leave or you want to do something with your life, you're like, I don't know. They just cast glances at you. (laughs) Samwise Gamgee lives in incredibly uh, secure and, and comfortable life as a gardener. Like, 
Yeah. The hobbits have the life. That's the stuff. He, he's a homeowner. <laughs> he's a homeowner who, who makes his living gardening for one client. Like, yeah. the hobbits and he's, are the best. And he's content with that. Yeah. And maybe that's I mean, the I mean, real I, lesson I, of this podcast. <laughs> be content. <laughs> Find contentment. Just, just become a gardener and sit on your porch for the rest of the day. Hey, if you can do, if you find the patience to become a gardener and sit on the porch for the rest of your, for the rest of the day, you have the correct temperament to bring your best friend to the end of the world to save the planet. So think about that next time you knock gardening and sitting at home all day with a little pipe and a book. Yeah, I mean, I mean, gardening is not my thing, but like, if that's if well, that's... you got brown snakes over there, like, I, I wouldn't garden if everything in the garden wanted to fucking kill me. Dude, are Including the flowers the plants, toxic like, too? Triffids yeah. and <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like Australia is really just annihilation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, although we don't have those crazy screaming bears that were just you're just that seriously shimmer. messed up. <laughs> you absolutely what, what do you call a kid a kangaroo is one of those screaming bears like those jacked no, up kangaroos they, they won't they won't scream they'll just kick the shit out of you yeah exactly kangaroos though they're, they're those bears and they bring the fire <laughs> although in saying that i'm pretty sure bears have a reputation for being bears <laughs> Yeah, they sleep like four months a year, man. <laughs> yeah, they only more people for the rest. <laughs> we we got more in common with bears than kangaroos. <laughs> oh, oh, hilarious! Well, where can people find um, Father in the Forest? I think all major online book retailers. Um, let me double check that real quick. But I mean, obviously, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Kobo. Um, I think it's on a few of the, I don't know if it's in Libby, um, but I think it's in, I'm pulling it up on Dra- draft to digital right now. It. Yeah. Sweet. So it's available obviously on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple, uh, Scribd, Kobo, 24 symbols, Tolino, Overdrive, Biblioteca, Viblio, and Baker and Taylor. So it's available on everything. Yeah. It's available on everything. And guess what? It's going to be on Hoopla soon too. Oh, and Audible. It'll be on Audible but uh, early 2021, I believe. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Right Direction. If you want to see conversations like this and so many more, please check out the podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and everywhere good podcasts are kept. That's Right Direction, W-R-I-T-E. And now that you've been given the right direction, you can go off and write.